All right, welcome everyone. Uh, this is Matt Bieber with the uh, New Mexico Department of Health. Today we've got our regular COVID-19 press update, including three of our regular guests, uh, Acting Secretary David R. Scrace, MD, uh, Deputy Secretary Laura Patajon, MD, MPH, and State Epidemiologist Christine Ross, MD, MPH. Uh, each of these guests will be uh, moving through a presentation, followed by Q&A at the end, as we always do. Uh, so I will, without further ado, turn it right over to our principals and, uh, and ask them to move through their presentations. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just begin briefly uh, by way of introducing to you all again, Laura Parahon and Christine Ross, two of my close colleagues, probably two of the most hardworking and busiest people in uh, state government in any case uh, across the state. Uh, Laura, with our overseas, uh, most of our medical aspects of DOH, and Christine, you've met uh, multiple times before, because here last week, uh, our epidemiologist. We, again, like last time, we have a lot of data to get through. We will leave plenty of time for questions, uh, but a lot is happening in the state, and we wanted to uh, give you our view on what was happening in the state and what a lot of what we've been seeing in the news. And so with that, I'm going to turn it over to uh, Laura and then actually Christine to give us an update on vaccinations. Laura with the public policy view and Christine with the epidemiological view. So with that, Laura. Okay, great. Hello, everybody. Good afternoon. And um, I'm going to give an update on the vaccine. So uh, next slide. So thank you, New Mexico, 76.4 uh, of New Mexicans 18 and over and 57.9 of 12 to 17 year olds have received at least one dose and 66.9% of New Mexicans um, and uh, who are 18 and over and 45% of 12 to 17 are fully vaccinated. So go New Mexico, you're doing a great job getting vaccinated. Next slide. Um, what's really exciting in the news this week uh, is that the FDA gave full approval for the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine on 8-23-21. So that's for FDA approval for 16 and over. Um, the FDA takes a lot of data and then they get the information and it says the vaccine is effective in preventing COVID-19 and potentially serious outcomes, including hospitalizations and deaths. Uh, this is actually really exciting. Um, a lot of people have been wondering, well, why not 12 to 15 year olds? It takes time for the for the FDA to approve this. So it's not that 12 to 15 aren't gonna get approved. It's just that they came on later as, as we all remember. So um, yeah, so this is great news. Next slide. So for everybody out there who hasn't gotten their vaccine yet, there's six days left for the $100 vaccine incentive. The last day to get $100 for getting vaccinated is on August 31st. This campaign has been super successful. Um, almost 40% more vaccines have been given since the last month. Um, it's for first or second shots of Pfizer or Moderna or the first and only shot of J&J. &J. Um, just so you know, third dose shots are not eligible. Um, and this is just an important point. A lot of people have been asking us the $100 incentive, once you, you know, get the vaccine, you have to opt in and it's available by email, text or physical mail. Um, if you get your incentive by email or text, you can only spend it online. If you get it by physical mail, it'll take you a little bit longer to get the incentive, but it can be spent anywhere online or offline. 
So you can either get vaccinated on vaccinenewmexico.org or you can call our hotline to get a vaccine uh, scheduled. Next slide. Um, this is how you opt in. This is just, uh, once again, you find the vaccine location, uh, you opt in, it'll ask you those questions, and then um, you'll receive your incentive um, once they verify your vaccine status. Great. Um, so this is another um, exciting um, information that's going on. The COVID vaccine booster is actually being considered for all people. So unlike the third dose that we're uh, giving now for um, people who are uh, immune suppressed, um, the COVID vaccine booster is actually being considered for kind of some of the waning vaccine effectiveness. Uh, so Dr. Vivek Murthy, the Surgeon General said, we know that even highly effective vaccines become less effective over time, that's normal. Um, but at the same time, you know, Secretary Grace David has also um, noted that the recent surge is also due to the Delta variant. So this is just information that's, um, you know, it's probably a combination of both, but the FDA is really evaluating and authorizing to see if they would authorize that um, vaccine booster. Um, the CDC is providing advice and guidance regarding the third dose now. And then once that's, um, that's approved, the New Mexico uh, Medical Advisory Team will defer to the CDC and um, the ACIP recommendations since that vaccine has already been evaluated by the Medical Advisory Team. So that's the update on the vaccine booster. I think a lot of people have been asking about that. Uh, next slide. So who actually does need the third COVID-19 vaccine dose now? Um, it's a, actually a limited group of people who basically never reach their full immunity from the vaccine dose because of being immune compromised. So basically these are a group of people, uh, people who are in active treatment for uh, cancer, uh, people who are having solid organ transplant, had a solid organ transplant, like a liver or kidney transplant, and they're taking immune suppression therapy, um, people who are getting a stem cell transplant or have like a primary immunodeficiency illness like the George syndrome, uh, people with advanced or untreated uh, HIV infection, and then people with active treatment um, of high, you know, high dose corticosteroids or any other like immune suppressing drug. Um, you can talk to your pr provider or pharmacist to see if that third dose vaccine is right for you. Um, and then we also are urging our healthcare providers to please let your patients know that they can uh, register um, to get the vaccine. And then if you are a vaccine, um, if you're a provider, please register to become a vaccine provider at TakeCareNewMexico.org. All right, next slide. And then um, we are so sorry. I think there was some confusion um, that you know we take responsibility for. A lot of um, people got a message in the in their text if they had cancer um, that they were potentially eligible for a third dose. We've now sent a a, a a new message that says it's only if you have cancer and are currently in treatment. So you will be receiving, um, those of you who did check off um, cancer will be receiving a new message. And then you just have to click on that you are currently in treatment in order to get the, um, in order to get your third dose. So sorry about that. And, and we hope this clears up some of that um, confusion. Okay, so my next slide is, uh, there's a lot of new data coming about 
out about pregnancy. Um, I've, also, I've treated um, patients who got COVID while pregnant. It is really scary. Um, hospitalized and preg pregnant women with COVID can have very severe illness. Um, some women can have um, up to like getting an ICU admission, needing mechanical ventilation and even die from, from COVID. So we really want to encourage all the women out there who are pregnant to get vaccinated to protect themselves. Uh, next slide. Um, this just shows how safe um, the COVID-19 is in pregnancy and also that it doesn't affect fertility. Uh, COVID is one of those things that we're getting more and more information every day and the data and the research um, shows that um, it is very, very safe to get a vaccine if you're pregnant, if you're breastfeeding, if you're trying to get pregnant or might become pregnant in the future. The vaccine is extremely safe. Um, we're we're um, actually really prioritizing this right now because um, we've gotten recent data that shows that 50% of women who are pregnant aren't, um, they didn't know about this recent data and information. So we're just trying to let you know so you can get protected um, from COVID if you're pregnant. Next slide. And we know that a lot of businesses and organizations are really recognizing the importance of the vaccine for protecting themselves and their businesses and their employees. And we really wanna recognize and shout out Navajo Nation for now requiring the COVID-19 vaccine for their employees. Um, Navajo Nation uh, President Jonathan Nez announced this new executive order on Sunday. And now all Navajo Nation executive branch employees will need to be fully vaccinated against the virus that causes COVID-19 by the end of September or be required to submit to regular testing. So thank you so much, President Nez and Navajo Nation for doing this to protect our communities. Thank you so much. Go ahead, Christine. Okay, great. Um, it's my pleasure to be here today. And I'm going to uh, present a few slides, uh, primarily using our uh, surveillance data. So let's go ahead and move to the first slide. Okay. Uh, so it's a little bit of a complicated slide. So I want to explain this. So this is data that's generated from surveillance that the state conducts. Uh, on vaccine breakthrough cases. So we're showing this data in, in graphical presentation. And these, we're, what we're showing you is the percent or the proportion in absolute number of cases, hospitalizations and deaths starting from February uh, up to the current week. So that we pulled data up through August uh, 23rd. So the pink uh, part of the bar uh, represents uh, the proportion of cases, hospitali hospitalizations, and deaths among unvaccinated individuals, and the blue represents uh, vac vaccinated persons. So I think what the take-home message is right away uh, is that we have a very, very, very highly effective countermeasure or tool uh, to use uh, to fight this pandemic. So predominantly what we've seen is that the majority of cases, hospitalizations and deaths are occurring among unvaccinated individuals. Now, 
we've been uh, sharing this data uh, in the cumulative, uh, the cumulative rates and numbers in one of our EPI reports uh, for some time now. The, the report is called the Social and Health Characteristics Report. Uh, it's available online. Uh, but a number of New Mexicans and reporters have been requesting to see uh, this data in a trend form. They wanted to see how this is changing over time, and they wanted to see the most recent period of time. And we've been diligently working on this. Um, we have a whole team of people, um, really smart epidemiologists, that have been working to refine the methodology. And so we're happy to share uh, more of that data now. So we can go to the next slide. So this is the same um, uh, surveillance system that we use uh, to track uh, vaccine uh, breakthrough cases. And again, this is it's it's complicated, but it's use, uh, using our um, surveillance data and then we link it or match it with vaccine uh, registry data. And again, this is depicting cases, hospitalizations, and death. Uh, the pink uh, portion of the bar are those individuals uh, that are unvaccinated, and the blue are those that are vaccinated. And so this is the most recent four-week period of time uh, dating back from August 23rd. And what you can see here is still the majority of, of, of uh, the burden of, of uh, hospitalizations and deaths and also cases are among persons who are unvaccinated. Though we are detecting, uh, now that we're in this surge of uh, infections and there is a high level of virus circulating in our communities, we have seen um, a larger proportion here uh, of, of cases, hospitalizations, and deaths among uh, vaccinated persons. So that is the difference that we're seeing in the data. Uh, next slide. And this is another busy graph, and it's a little bit complicated, um, but the the, the graph, what we're depicting here is COVID-19 infections um, oh, uh, depicted by the seven-day rolling average case rate. So this is the case rate per 100,000 population, and it's by vaccination status. So the green line, which I'm pointing at there with a large red arrow, is um, the case rate among unvaccinated persons. And this is very... Um, quite uh, worrisome uh, to see. Uh, so this this uh, steep incline, it's, it, there is a, just an exponential rise in, in, in the number of cases or infections. And this has been driven by, this is primarily among unvaccinated persons. So if you look at the yellow or the gold line, that's depicting individuals that are vaccinated. And again, what we showed in the previous slide, you could see that trend line moving upward. So we have been, we have detected more cases among vaccinated persons, but it does uh, not compare to, to this steep incline here seen among unvaccinated uh, persons. So, so very, very worrisome. And we're hoping uh, that um, we're, we're going to get the message out and we're going to mobilize uh, more people to, to seek out uh, vaccination. Um, next slide. 
So this again is using the same data. And now what we're depicting is the seven day rolling average of hospitalizations or, or excuse me, the hospitalization rate per 100,000 population, again, by vaccination status. And again, the green line is depicting individuals who are unvaccinated and the gold line, which does uh, move, you can see that, that we have a slight incline there uh, upwards, but predominantly what we are seeing is unvaccinated individuals uh, who are taking up uh, a hospital beds. And again, really hoping to get the message out here by using our surveillance data um, uh, that you can see that vaccinated individuals are, are um, very well protected against hospitalization. And we're hoping to get uh, more folks out there, as many people as possible that are eligible currently, we're hoping that we get them vaccinated. Now, I just want to mention briefly that surveillance data is very useful um, to look at trends. We look for signals that are that are worrisome, uh, that could be worrisome changes, uh, but it does have limitations. So um, one project that we're working on right now that I want to mention is that we are combining our surveillance data on vaccine breakthrough. Uh, cases, hospitalizations, and deaths, and we're going to combine that. We're working to combine it with multiple other states, and um, uh, I believe it's going to be a total of 13 um, jurisdictions that are going to contribute, and um, we're, uh, the idea is to use more data, have more robust methodology, and, and, and uh, statistical, um, statistically sound analyses um, to look at these patterns. And um, this should be published in the CDC MMWR, I hope, in the next um, couple of weeks. Uh, I think I have a couple more slides. Next slide. Okay. And so this is data from Los Angeles. So this is published data. Um, and the link is down at the bottom of the slide. And again, it's, it's looking at um, um, cases, hospitalizations, deaths uh, by vaccine status. So what do we see amongst persons that are fully vaccinated, uh, partially vaccinated and unvaccinated? You see the numbers there on, on the slide, but I'm, I'm not going to review those. I just want to uh, head right to the takeaway point that uh, from this data in LA County, they found that the hospitalization rates among the unvaccinated uh, that were included in this analysis, the rates were 20 time, 29 times greater uh, than those persons that were vaccinated. And uh, again, this, this looks quite similar, uh, very similar to the data that I just shared um, from our surveillance work here in the state. So next slide. Okay, again, so I, I talked about um, we, what we've shown you is our surveillance data. We talked a little bit about um, um, that there are limitations to surveillance data. So we want to look at vaccine effectiveness, vaccine breakthrough rates, um, using other methodologies um, when possible. And also other, um, certainly uh, we want to compare to other states. We want to compare to published 
studies. Um, so what we've shared here is uh, some data from New York and looking at vaccine effectiveness against infection. And what they have seen is a similar trend in what we showed you in our surveillance data is that vaccine effectiveness against preventing infection seems to have declined uh, over time. And this was seen in the New York State uh, data as well as this Mayo Clinic data, which is referenced on the bottom there of the slide. Um, I believe the one on the bottom is a preprint, but you can find that online. The study on the top is, is published. And what, what we're finding from combining all of this vaccine effectiveness data is that we are seeing a trend over time in the vaccine effectiveness in preventing infection. And this is why now that we've seen the signal, we are starting to plan about um, rolling the necessity and the possibility of rolling out a booster. But what we're also seeing in this data is that vaccine effectiveness against hospitalization, a severe disease hospitalization and death remains very high. And so that's what you're seeing there on the slide. The age adjusted vaccine effectiveness against hospitalizations remains stable in the New York uh, cohort um, at 92 to 95% and v, uh, vaccine effectiveness or VE against hospitalization in the Mayo Clinic study also has remained uh, very high. Okay, next slide. And I think this is my last slide. And I, I, I think that there, um, there is some additional information that, that um, we could uh, we could add to this slide, um, which is the link to uh, the study that this is referring to, but this is um, published data. Um, this was generated from the Ivy Surveillance Network. It's, uh, it's uh, basically a net hospital network that we use to evaluate vaccine effectiveness against uh, hospitalizations for flu and for other uh, viral illnesses. So we use this surveillance network uh, of hospitalizations to generate data um, also for um, COVID-19. And uh, this data as well supports um, uh, what we are seeing in our data, that vaccine effectiveness against hospitalization uh, remains uh, very high. I'm gonna pause there. I believe that might be my last slide and I can turn this over to Secretary Sprace. Thank you very much, Christine. Thanks, Laura, as well. Uh, awful lot of information out there uh, today. So I'm gonna take you through where we are and a particular focus on hospitals because that's a big problem for us right now. Next slide, please, Brianna. Uh, our usual epi curve, you can see the blue line is cases throughout the entire state. You can see the, uh, the lines underneath uh, are regions of the state. And we've drawn that red box to give you a sense that the curve we're experiencing right now over on the right, the blue line is just about as steep as the one in the red box on the left. I think it's a little less steep, but not that much. You can also see both the metro region and the southeast <clears throat> taking off, but this is the total number of cases. And of course, there's a lot more people who live in the metro region than the southeastern part of the state, but you can see those in the lower right. And then 
a little gradual increase throughout the rest of the state as well. Next slide. <clears throat> These are two epi curves similar to the ones I've shown you. The one on the left is the Northwest region case count by collection date. And the one on the right is the Southeast region. And if you focus and Brianna, maybe you can point down in the lower right corner of the Northwest region, you can see the other one, Brianna, the Northwest region, you can see that we're having an uptick there, <clears throat> just like we are across the whole state. And if you look across and you don't really look at the gray area, it looks like maybe 60 cases per 100,000 people per day right there. Now, if you move across, keeping up with Brianna here to the other graph, this is the Southeastern region. And you can see we're uh, <clears throat> rapidly approaching uh, 280 cases per 100,000 people per day. So we're about five times more cases in the Southeast than we are in the Northwest. And then if you notice the boxes at the top, almost two thirds of people in the Northwest region are fully vaccinated and less than 50% in the Southeast region. And so this emphasizes something that's been important to me since the very beginning of the pandemic. And that's the importance of the actions we take, not just for ourselves, but for our whole community. Here's an example where tens of thousands of people choosing to be vaccinated has provided what we uh, like to call herd immunity, that protection for everyone else in the community. You know, there are unvaccinated people who can't <clears throat> be vaccinated for medical reasons. There are children under the age of 12 who can't be vaccinated because we don't have a vaccine for them yet. And so the fact uh, this, this, and I'm not picking on uh, people in the Southeast either, but I do wanna recognize the efforts that have been put forth in the Northwest, particularly through the Indian Health Service and the Navajo Nation that, that Laura previously recognized to get so many people vaccinated as have done so. Next slide. <clears throat> this is just the, it's not the red, yellow, green, turquoise. You're not having a flashback. This is the red, orange, yellow, blue system of the CDC. You recall the CDC said, if you live in a higher risk area, you should be wearing masks indoors. Now the state says everyone should be wearing masks indoors. So. Uh, only the people of, of Harding, uh, the 670, 50, 657 people that live in that county, in theory, from the CDC perspective, uh, uh, might not need to wear masks, although our state mandate for indoors is that you should, and the outbreak is really way out of control. We've seen case rates in the hundreds in, uh, in uh, both uh, Eddy and uh, Lee counties. Uh, meaning that 0.1% of folks in those counties, so it's like every 10 days, 1% of the population will be infected. And that's that we've not seen those kind of rates in a sustained fashion ever in the history of this pandemic. Next slide. <clears throat> uh, a national map that kind of illustrates the fact that ICU beds nationwide are filling up New Mexico is in that high fill rate group as of this morning. Our ICU beds in the state are well over 100% with uh, the ICUs in Albuquerque, Presbyterian, and, uh, and the university in particular expanding well beyond their capacity to take care of extra people. Atlanta is not in good shape. Uh, sorry, Georgia there. Uh, 
sorry, that is, uh, is that Mississippi? No, it's Alabama. Sorry, it's Alabama. Uh, Atlanta is in charge, of course. Alabama just didn't report their data, which is why they're white on this map. Next slide, please. And in New Mexico, uh, this is a report of all of the open ICU beds as of a single point in time. If you live in Albuquerque, Farmington, uh, Las Cruces, there are very, very few ICU beds. And one thing is that because this is a single moment in time and because we're at over 100% capacity, these beds are filled before we get time to make the map and print out the graph. And so uh, we have a very, very high fill rate of both ICU beds, which you can see on the left, and now just general hospital COVID beds, medical surgical beds are filled up almost across the entire state. Again, with a few openings in Clovis, a few openings in Gallup, but I guarantee you that all of those beds have been filled since we, uh, since this was reported on the 24th. Now, of course, more people will be discharged today and those beds will be filled, but we have over 50 people right now just on a waiting list to get ICU care. Next slide. <clears throat> Again, the graph that shows what kind of shape are we in in our hospital systems um, and with red being crisis standard of care where the state declares that we no longer have enough resources to take care of everybody and that we're going to have to make decisions about who gets an ICU bed, for example. The uh, Some people have asked, well, gee, we don't have anywhere near the number of cases as we had last time, for example, near the end of November. Why are we so close already? And there's two reasons. One is staffing shortages play a significant role and we don't have as many nurses, so we don't have any beds we can expand into. And that's something we're working on, but everyone in the nation has this problem with not having enough nurses right now. And so we're working to try to help and connect our hospitals with FEMA, the Federal Agency for Emergency Management. And we do believe we can get some extra funding for this, but still we're short, very, very short nationwide. And then the second thing is we have a lot more sick people in the hospital this year than we did last year. And you all know, if you've been watching these press conferences, that some of that is due to delayed care. Folks who didn't go to medical systems and see their doctors for a year or more now showing up with much more critical illnesses due to lack of diabetic care or care for their heart disease or their blood pressure or whatever. So uh, in tough situation here, very, very close within the next week, we've decided to actually have a weekly press update for you as we go through this red period so you can stay abreast with us with the data we're looking at and what's happening. And I'm gonna give a couple suggestions about what we can do to turn this curve around in the next few slides. Okay, next slide. <clears throat> we do have some predictive modeling and Brianna, if you could point to that point on August 21st there on the blue line uh, or the blue and red line up above, that is where we were on August 21st in terms of hospital capacity. This comes from our modeling friends at Presbyterian and the red and blue lines overlap because the red line is what they're predicting and the blue line is what actually happened. And you can see they've been pretty good at predicting. Lines below outline more ICU hospitalizations and ventilator uh, use and those projections as well. The problem we're having is that projection for the next two weeks up above, I just showed you slides 
that show that our hospitals are virtually full and those brackets, if you can point to that, uh, Brianna, and the projection for the next two weeks show another about, uh, <clears throat> let's see, uh, another 20% increase, 30% increase in hospitalizations just from uh, several days ago. And so we don't have room for those folks. We don't have room for those New Mexicans. And we are working to do everything we possibly can to make more room, but we are just running out of rooms and of course out of staff to take care of patients. Next slide. Uh, COVID treatments, uh, on the left, you can see the number of doses of remdesivir given to the moderately ill people who end up in the hospital who benefit from this treatment. It shortens their hospitalization. So hospitals are giving this treatment pretty much to everyone with COVID now in an effort to shorten those hospitalizations and make more room. They've been doing that since the beginning and you can see they picked right up with the recent surge. But that's a little bit too late. Those people are already in the hospital. What can we do to keep people out of the hospital? Um, apart from going back in a time machine a month or two and having us all get vaccinated uh, and our time machine is broken, we're really left with the treatments and that MAB stands for monoclonal antibodies. And those are for people who are uh, <clears throat> over 64 uh, or, or are obese or has any one risk factor uh, for COVID. So for example, were I to contract COVID, which hopefully I will not, I try to be very careful, but were I to contract, I would immediately seek out antibody treatment because I meet several of those criteria up there and I, and I am not obese, at least uh, not so far in this pandemic. Next slide, please. Uh, so a reminder to get tested as well. Uh, we showed this last week. I won't go through it. It doesn't matter if you're vaccinated, please get tested. If you have symptoms of COVID, if you have what you think are unusually bad allergies or new runny nose and new uh, loss of sense of smell or new cough, whatever, you should get tested. And, and we've seen a good response from people in New Mexico who are pleased to get more testing this past week. We've seen our test positivity rate curve downward a little bit, so thanks for all of you who have uh, taken that advice. Well, you'll be hearing that message over and over and over again. The reason we wanna test you, uh, next slide, uh, is so we can identify cases and get you isolated. You can still get the test at no cost. There are many, many locations around the state. You can go to findatestnm.org to find a test site near you. And of course you can be tested at home through Vault and they have their own website where you can get testing as well. Next slide, please. <clears throat> so where are we going based on all this? Is the curve continuing to go up? Well, yes, it is. You can see on the graph on the right that we project to go up even further. Uh, if you're optimistic and haven't had a lot of math training, you'll think, wow, we're only gonna have three and a half cases, but that's a logarithmic scale. So one is 10, two equals 100, three equals 1,000, and it looks like we're projecting 1,300 to 1,500 cases per day. Uh, and, you know, I mentioned last week we have three scenarios, best case, middle case, worst case. We continue to track along our worst case scenario projections. If there is good news here, it's that there's a projection that you all and the public and uh, our media partners helping with that will help flatten that curve, that people will 
back up a little bit, be more careful, wear their masks more diligently, stay away from uh, crowded indoor spaces. And so this modeling shows the, that we could potentially get a downturn in this uh, surge as early as the middle of September, but I think that's too far out to really call. And a lot of the modeling here depends on public response to the increased number of cases. You know, when a thousand people a day are having an uh, infection, that means that more of us are likely to know someone in our family or our friends who have COVID. I certainly have heard about a lot of cases in the past couple of weeks with people I know very well, and that causes us all to be more cautious. And so we would urge you all uh, to be more cautious as well. I was talking with the legislature about public health orders and, and I was thinking to the public health orders aren't like the maximum number of things people should do to protect themselves, they're the minimum. And so you can wear a mask outside, you can avoid uh, situations. Every person is different. Every person has to assess their own risk. Next slide, please. Uh, <clears throat> state employee vaccination rates, there's a lot in the news about required vaccinations. I'm really, really proud of this, although I wanna give the credit more to Laura and Christine because I just recently arrived at DOH, but uh, in the Department of Health, the people in the state government who know the most about COVID and the most about vaccines and the most about testing and the most about managing the pandemic, they've been doing it from the beginning. 88% of New Mexico Department of Health employees are fully vaccinated. I'm not sure, but we may be giving, giving the County of Los Alamos a run for their money now, but Please still consider vaccine. Please realize that there is a vaccine now, the Pfizer one, that's no longer on EUA. It's not experimental in any way. And uh, if you're not going to, uh, <clears throat> whether you're vaccinated or not, you need to isolate immediately if you get symptoms. And if you have risk fa factors, be sure to seek treatment to avoid hospitalization. So next slide. And then I've gotten a lot of email and text messages about the upsides and the downsides of requiring medical personnel to be vaccinated. I think we've mentioned this before, but healthcare personnel have some of the highest rates of uh, uh, COVID cases in the country among all uh, different types of workers. It does make sense because many of these folks are exposed to COVID every day, but they sometimes acquire COVID outside of the workplace as well. I've heard a lot uh, of negative sort of feedback about how dare we require hospital employees or nurses or doctors to have vaccines. Well, just so you all know, uh, hospitals across the country, the world require a fairly long series of vaccines for all hospital workers from time immemorial. And so hepatitis B, influenza, MMR, varicella, Tdap, um, in Chicago vaccine, I've had them all and I have to have those updated. Actually, I've not had MMR because I've had the measles, mumps and rubella and I, my blood test shows that I'm immune. But this is not a new thing in healthcare. And uh, I've heard from folks saying, well, you know, our nurses are going to move to Texas because they don't want to be vaccinated. And I've encouraged and I've heard of Texas folks coming across the border to recruit nurses. And I think New Mexico ought to go recruit the majority, the two thirds of nurses in Texas that are vaccinated and get them to work in safer work environments here in New Mexico. So uh, there's still a few more days. Most systems 
in the state I've talked to have uh, made great progress reaching out and getting folks vaccinated. Some people are looking for exemptions, but this is an important part of our fight against the COVID virus in our state. I think we're coming close to the end. Next slide, please. Uh, I did want to talk about another tragic, you know, we all think that, <clears throat> you know, COVID is something that kills old people. Here's a couple from Georgia, married for over 20 years. Uh, uh, they're both, you know, no longer living. Be they died within hours of each other. They left behind two teenage children uh, having to deal with their loss, you know, and Cornelius, their nephew, uh, talked about how much he wished that his aunt and uncle had been vaccinated and, and about the pain they're experiencing. Again, these are real stories. They happen every day. They also happen in New Mexico. And uh, please, uh, if you have kids, strongly consider getting vaccinated if you're not already. Okay, next slide. Now we're gonna go to a couple updates for the press. We would really appreciate your help in getting the word out about this. We're done with the COVID part of this, or at least the virus part of the COVID part of this, but there's some other programs that are changing and we want your readers and viewers and listeners to be fully aware of. Number one, September 4th is the last day of federal extended benefits. So all of these four dots on the right uh, come to an end on the 4th. We're concerned because we know that means we have a high percentage of unemployed people in New Mexico, still over 8%, I believe. And uh, those individuals will now not have jobs or, and, and sorry, they won't have jobs and they won't have supplemental income. Uh, don't forget to certify for those federal benefits. Uh, a week has been added just so uh, <clears throat> you can get those in if you haven't done it already. And uh, the Workforce Solutions Department will make sure that you get any monies owed to you uh, prior to September 4th. So please work with them on that. Next slide, Matt. Uh, here's some numbers you can call, some links you can click on. Uh, NMDWS is well covered on Twitter, in, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. So please connect if you're unemployed and receiving these benefits. We want to work with you. And as a new state response to this change, Next slide, please. Uh, there is a new program called Ready New Mexico. And this is a program put together by Workforce Solutions, Higher Ed. Uh, and we are uh, working uh, and, and Workforce Connections joining together to provide training, helping you with applications for job, helping you with employee employment resources. Maybe you need more education. We're working to tailor programs to each individual. You can start that process by going to www.ready.nm.gov or calling the 800 number at the bottom and you can start asking questions. And if your questions aren't answered by the chatbot, you can call the number and get further help. We really encourage every New Mexican who is unemployed to seek this out now because getting you back to work and getting you a living wage is something that's gonna be important to both us, but of course, to you as well. And then on the next slide, another state resource that you may not have heard about. And again, our media partners, we'd really like your help 
getting the word out. Uh, a federally sponsored program, RentHelpNewMexico.org. Uh, if you can go there if you're renting. Uh, <clears throat> I uh, checked today, and if you're someone who's receiving, if you're one of the one million people receiving benefits to the Human Services Department, for example, you may well qualify uh, for rental assistance benefits. Your income will qualify you, but there are other criteria as well. But if you're currently unemployed, for example, or you're having trouble paying your rent, there is a program to support you during this pandemic. Please, please uh, go to the, the website shown here and reach out and get the assistance that you need. Next slide. And here's just another graphic and uh, you can get up to 15 months of assistance. It's not just for rent, it's for utility bills. If you're homeless, you can even get support for hotel or motel costs while you're looking for housing. And this is not a loan, uh, it does not have to be repaid. On average participants receive over $4,000. And just a shout out also to renters, landlords, utility providers, we can provide you assistance to provide your low-income clients assistance as well in bulk. And we're very, very interested uh, in helping you in that regard too. So two important programs uh, as we're seeing federal assistance wind down that we want to make available to New Mexicans. And with that, I think we're to the usual closing slide that warns us that the virus is changed into Delta and please get vaccinated. Now you can get a non-EUA vaccine uh, within the next six days. You can get $100 and you can protect yourself, your family, and your community. I do wanna emphasize again, if you do get COVID and you're over 64, obese, or have one of those risk factors for severe COVID illness, please seek out monoclonal gamma, uh, sorry, monoclonal antibody treatment from your provider. And uh, just, we all need to take great care, wash our hands, keep things clean, mask up, always in indoor spaces and keep that social distancing and don't forget your preventative health care, and don't forget vaccination. With that, Matt, I think we're ready to turn it back to you. I know it was a lot of information again today. We knew there would be last time it was 50 minutes, today it's 51 and we're open for all questions. Thanks. Thank you, Dr. Scrace. So with that, we'll just begin moving through uh, the questions, the hands that are raised, I see a bunch. I'll just start at the top. When I call on you, um, if you wouldn't mind just uh, repeating the name of your outlet so that our panelists are aware of who's asking and where you're from. Uh, and with that, we'll begin with Selena Madrid, followed by Algernon Damasa, followed by Susan Montoya Bryan. So Selena, you are unmuted. You should be able to ask your question. Hi there, thank you so much for um, allowing us to be here and answering our questions today. Um, I'm Selena Madrid with KFOX 14 and CBS4 out in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Um, a statewide protest was held today in response to Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham's order mandating all health workers to get the COVID-19 vaccine. What's your response to New Mexicans saying you're violating their medical consent? Are you all even listening to what they have to say? Um, well, I can start with that, but you know, Christine and Laura may both want to add to that. You know, I get a lot of emails. I answered, for example, uh, 120 emails this morning from constituents who had concerns. It didn't happen to be about vaccinations. So uh, I wouldn't want anyone to either think or 
even imply that we might not be listening. So just want to make that perfectly clear. You know, we are a government of the people, by the people, for the people. And that does not mean, though, that we can possibly represent every individual opinion. In general, I guess my main answer is I know from a survey we did months ago that about 80% of hospital workers have been vaccinated, 80%. So at 80%, I think that gets, shines a bright light on the idea that this is a gross infringement on people's rights or their medical rights. There is, in a pandemic, there are both personal rights and there's also responsibilities. And I think 80% of healthcare workers have already voted with their arms to receive the vaccine because they wanna protect themselves from hospitalization and death. They wanna protect their loved ones from hospitalization and death. They wanna protect their patients from hospitalization and death. And so um, I think we hear, we're, li we're listening to the people who feel this, is, this infringes on their uh, personal rights, but we also have a deep uh, and a responsibility we take very, very seriously to protect uh, the 80% of uh, New Mexicans who, uh, healthcare workers who've gotten vaccinated already and all the people they care for. So um, I don't know, Christine, Laura, any other angles on that? Hi, this is uh, Christine. I think you gave a, a really good answer. And I, I just want to add, you know, from a from a public health perspective, of course, there's a real uh, tension uh, between individual level interests and then uh, public health uh, um, concerns. And uh, definitely we, we hear those concerns and it's quite challenging because we are in the midst of, of, of you know, one of the worst, <laughs> if not the worst, a uh, global uh, pandemic uh, that we have seen besides the global HIV pandemic uh, in, in, uh, that we are still currently dealing with. So I would say that we, we understand that, um, we understand those concerns, um, um, but we do have a long history of, of implementing uh, public health mandates uh, that serve the community at large. This, this ranges from water and sanitation efforts, uh, adding fluoride to water, uh, seatbelt laws, uh, the, the restriction on smoking indoors, uh, childhood uh, vaccines. So I would say we do have a long history of, of taking uh, actions uh, for the good of, of, of communities at large and for, for public health. Um, uh, reasons. Uh, but with that being said, I, I would acknowledge that I understand this is this is a very difficult and challenging time. And I, I think I'll pause there. I'll see if, if uh, Laura wants to add anything. And no, I, yeah, I think both of you just said it very well. And just, you know, I think one of the key messages has been just, yeah, help us protect our communities. And um, it's not just to protect ourselves, but our communities as well. So. Thank you, everyone. Next, I'll go to Algernon DeMassa, followed by Susan Montoya Bryan. And then I'm going to ask a question on behalf of Annalisa Pardo, who's having a little bit of technical uh, issues at her computer. So I'll just ask her questions for her. 
Algernon, you should be free to ask your questions. Thank you, Matt, and thank you all doctors. Um, just a quick question from Las Cruces, uh, uh, and it regards the, the how the hospital network across the state as a whole um, balances the load. So I'm hearing today that there's a waiting list for ICU beds in the, in the network, um, but the Las Cruces hospitals that I speak to, including Memorial Medical Center, are a little more sanguine. They're busy, but they say that they're not over full and that they do have a little bit of room. So I'm wondering, is there does the hospital system distribute this load as evenly as possible, or are there problems transporting patients from, say, the Albuquerque area down into the Southwest as needed? How yeah, Algernon, that's a great question. And uh, you know, I work with the MAT and uh, I've been meeting with them um, almost daily now about this issue. We have brought up our statewide transfer center. It does keep track of all the beds in the state. Uh, Las Cruces, um, I think when I showed that map from yesterday had one or two uh, ICU beds open, but uh, they may still have some room to expand beyond their normal capacity. We do transfer people, I remember the last surge, we moved people from Gallup down to Las Cruces. In fact, that's a long way to go. But we do function as much as we possibly can, like one large system. And I've been getting a little uh, different message just from all corners of the state right now about cases. Uh, the, and last, we have a hub and spoke model, Las Cruces uh, with Memorial and Mountain View as the two hub hospitals. They take admissions from the entire Southwest part of the state. And then when they get over full, they transfer to Albuquerque. I, I, and so uh, normally it works quite well and uh, we can always follow up today, but I, what you're hearing from them, like being sanguine doesn't mean they have lots of beds, but what you're hearing from them is a little <laughs> different than what I heard this morning. So thanks. Okay, I think we'll move ahead to Susan Montoya Bryan. Uh, followed by Annalisa Pardo, and then we'll go to Daniel Chacon. Susan, you should be unmuted and able to ask your question. Doctors, this is Susan with the Associated Press here in Albuquerque. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. I noticed one of the slides uh, mentioned 85% as maybe a magic number for avoiding a hospital crisis in terms of having folks vaccinated. So could you provide any insight in terms of the, the demographics of the folks who have not been vaccinated yet? And how many of them are folks who simply just can't get it for health reasons? Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let Laura uh, take this one because she has an enormous amount of data about the unvaccinated. You know, I haven't had anyone in my practice who couldn't get the vaccine because of health reasons. I would estimate it's less than one half of 1%. Some people can be allergic to polyethylene glycol, which uh, is in a couple of the vaccines, but not all of them. So there's an alternative for almost everyone. And, and I didn't mean to put a pin in the 85%. I was just uh, making the point that if we had that many people vaccinated, we probably wouldn't be to the case level we have today. Obviously, we can't go back in time, but Laura knows everything there is to know about the demographics, the ages, uh, the beliefs, the behaviors of the unvaccinated. So Laura, do you want to enlighten us all? 
Well, um, actually, a lot of this um, information is from a study done by uh, Gabe Sanchez from UNM um, Social Policy um, Center. And basically, they surveyed approximately two, two, more than 2,000 people and did a very good sample of that group of people. And so a lot of the what what he found in, in the study for, for people who are unvaccinated is some of it is, you know, I, ideological like you just don't you know like believe in the vaccine and then there are some people who as you know things get improved like fda you know they they're concerned about fda approval so like the fda approval would help people get the vaccine or some people just are you know not having had time or are not getting the hours like the evening hours are the best time for them to get vaccinated so there's a group like that, but there is, you know, and, and I actually think New Mexico is doing better than what, what we thought would happen. He had predicted about 32% of people, um, according to the survey, would definitely not get vaccinated for different reasons. And uh, actually, we're above that right now, right? So we have a really good vaccination rate right now that's better than 32%. So I think as people are finding out more information, about the vaccine, I think the Delta really did influence people. Um, you know, it's so much more infectious. We're dealing with a, a almost a totally different, you know, set of rules for the Delta. Um, I, I think that's why a lot of people are also getting vaccinated. We saw um, over a 36% improvement between last month in July to this month in August for the, I think it's a combination of the $100 incentive and also the concern about the Delta virus and you know providers out there um, what we've been finding from our own surveys that we've been doing in um, people who are getting vaccinated is that a lot of people are like you know my provider talked to me and he talked to me two or three times or she talked to me two or three times and I finally decided to get the vaccine so I think providers and friends and and seeing you know that it is effective if it is safe is really what's helping people make that decision. Thank you so much. Uh, so next, I'm going to ask a question on behalf of Annalisa Pardo, and then we'll go to Jan Daniel Chacon, followed by Julia Goldberg. So the question from Annalisa Pardo is, um, what kind of effect, if any, are we seeing with the $100 vaccine incentive? In other words, is it affecting vaccination rates? And uh, given that boosters seem like they're coming down the line, can we expect to see future rounds of incentive programs? Um, well, Laura already addressed that 30 to 36% increase in vaccines per day when comparing August to July. And so I think a good part of that is the, uh, you know, is the $100 incentive that we've put in place. Uh, I, you know, I don't know about another round of incentives. I mean, at some point, uh, the incentives uh, we started and got, 50% of the population vaccinated without incentives. We we push that up uh, to 60% with some incentives. We're pushing it a little harder, a little further with additional incentives, but uh, we don't want getting vaccinations to become a source of income, a primary source of income for individuals in New Mexico. And so we're just gonna have to wait and see. I think when you get the vaccine, when you have the second one, you find out it really isn't as bad as you thought. You're aware of what's going on in the community with the Delta variant. 
we'll just have to wait and see. I know I'm going to get my uh, booster vaccine as soon as I'm eligible and not wait for an incentive. And I think at some point uh, we'll be asking communities more to work on this within their own communities as we have already to do it. But uh, there are no plans in the works right now, no discussions that I'm aware of for another incentive. Okay, uh, next we'll move to Daniel Chacon, followed by Julia Goldberg, and then I'm gonna ask a question on behalf of Tony Rapp. Uh, so Daniel, go ahead and ask your question, please. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for taking our questions. Uh, Dr. Scrace mentioned that most hospital systems have made great progress getting employees vaccinated. What is the range of vaccination rates among hospitals in New Mexico and do you have any sense of how many hospital employees will not comply with the vaccine mandate and how that might affect staffing levels and the ability to provide health care in New Mexico? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great question. And I have not personally seen that data. I know the Hospital Association collected some a while ago, and I think they would be a better source than we would. I do know that big hospitals, um, it varies also by the profession of the person working there. So, you know, many hospital systems just required every employee to do it. But the closer you are to patients, uh, the much higher the vaccination rate is. So doctors, I think, tend to run 98%, nurses over 90%, uh, uh, AIDS less. We've made good progress in nursing homes with nursing home staff. Uh, they're over 70% now. Uh, I don't have facility by facility uh, ranges, but it's a really good question. And I will reach out to our colleagues at the hospital association who I was just talking with this morning to see if they're willing to provide more information. I know nursing homes data about vaccination rates for residents and staff are now available publicly by CMS, but I, am, I have not seen or heard of that for hospitals. So. Great question, Daniel, and I will, uh, I'll reach out and see if I can get an answer. Thank you. Okay, thanks very much. I believe next up is uh, Julia Goldberg. Then I'm gonna ask a question or two on behalf of Tony Rapp, and then we'll turn to Chris McKee. Julia, you should be unmuted. Thanks so much, Matt, and thank you so much, uh, doctors. I have a couple of really quick questions. Some of them are basically yes or no questions. Um, the first is actually a request. I know the Department of Health is creating a weekly report on breakthrough infections because I've been requesting it, as I think have a lot of other people. I was hoping you might just publish it so I could stop bothering the health department every week. Um, but I didn't know if you could talk about, there's some uh, detailed data in it that I don't, I don't really know how to interpret, for example, you know, why Why are almost 60% of the breakthrough cases among women, do you think? And then uh, Dr. Ross, I was hoping, um, I was hoping number one, could you confirm that that collaborative project you mentioned is COVID net? Um, and then I also didn't know if you could offer some thoughts about that effectiveness data you referenced, if it's about, if it aligns with your expectations compared with um, efficacy data. Um, and I also was hoping maybe somebody could comment on, it looks to me from the uh, social and health report as though there's been kind of a decline of cases among people with underlying conditions. And I don't know if that is simply another attribute of Delta uh, being more transmissible or if there's anything else 
to conclude from that. And I will stop there before Matt meets me. Thank you. Well, Christine, I'm really excited uh, about the report. We did scoop you for once, although you've been asking it for it for months, but I put the link, Julia, uh, Dan from Albuquerque Journal has been asking us to put the link in the chat, but if you go to the usual epidemiology reports, there's a new report on the bottom called vaccination report. And I just brought it up myself. So I know that it's there and you'll find the data you're looking for uh, under vaccination report. Um, but Christine can give all the other answers. I'm really proud of the team. You know, we have some of the best data reporting in the whole country. And uh, this kind of data is not available. One of, we're one of a small group of states that was selected to work with the CDC on this issue because we actually track it. And that's really due to Christine's leadership and organizing the group into a highly data-oriented, data-producing uh, machine, if you will. There's like 10, I think, now reports online every week, and they're weighty reports. Christine. Sure. So I would say that... Um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you've been asking the question, and I would apologize if it appears that there's been a delay. Um, we've been working on this uh, along with many other projects and, 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 uh, and studies even that we're trying to get off the ground. Um, so this, this report, we're hoping that um, uh, this will be useful. As, as uh, Secretary Scrace said, it's going to be published weekly. Um, we continue to uh, discuss it and think through what, sh you know, different graphs and, and uh, uh, ways that we can uh, share the data that will be useful uh, to New Mexicans and, and to reporters. Um, so you might see that it, it might evolve a little bit over time. Um, but that should be available. Uh, I, I'm glad Secretary Scrace said it's already there. I didn't. I didn't know that it was posted quite yet. That's great. Um, I would say that I think you asked me a question about um, vaccine effectiveness. Um, I'm not quite sure if I have the spirit of your question, but I would say that you know we've talked. We've reviewed our data uh, with the CDC. This is data that we share with CDC. Um, we also, we discuss our data with other states and we talk through the methodology to make sure that we can actually compare what we're seeing with what other states are seeing. And um, it took us some time to feel uh, confident that we had refined the methodology and that we would be, what we was, what we were sharing uh, was um, uh, good information, or in other words, um, we felt good about the work that we had done and um, felt that uh, the trends that we were seeing uh, were indeed uh, valid or, or, or real. And yeah, it, yes, I would say it coincides um, with other uh, data, other surveillance data. It coincides with published data now that is coming out um, from a variety of sources here in the United States and also globally. Um, uh, let me pause and make sure that that answered your question. Uh, oops, I see that you also asked 
something about the MMWR. Um, I can't speak to all of the jurisdictions, um, if all of their data is coming from COVIDnet or not. I haven't reviewed this yet carefully, um, so I can't quite answer that, um, but I can certainly take a look and, and get back to you. Um, but again, we're hoping that that will be published within the next one to two weeks. I don't think there's going to be any big surprises. Again, uh, we are we all talk to each other. Uh, we look at each other's uh, data. We discuss the trends. And again, um, what we're seeing is fairly consistent from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, and it's consistent with what's been published. Um, I think I'll pause there. Let me see if I missed anything. Christine, there was one about women being 60% of vaccine breakthrough cases. And I don't think we know that, Julia. We know that men are more susceptible to more severe disease. That's the data. That? I, was, I was given that. I was given that data, 59.7% in New Mexico. No, so. no, I believe you. I'm just saying, I don't know if we know why that is. Oh, why? That's what I would say. You know, I, if I were just being a guy, I know that women are much more sociable and interact more with others than men do. And so it may be that they just have more contacts. So it could be that it's not really the independent variable at all, but it's associated with a level of activity or, you know, caring for driving kids to school, or I don't know what that might not for sure, but might be the driving force. But I think we don't know. And I'm not sure if we've seen that in other data. I haven't seen this level of granular data from other states. So I don't know. Uh, I haven't either. And, and Dr. Ross, just to clarify, um, my question about effectiveness was less asking about the accuracy of our data. But last week or two weeks ago, Dr. Strace had mentioned that he would talk at some point about effectiveness versus efficacy. And I thought that the data that you were discussing related to those effectiveness studies might be an opening to that. So that's what I was referring to. But okay. thanks. Yeah, thank you. So just to go back to the first discussion, I, I just want to say that, you know, I, I think the question you asked about gender is really interesting. And it's it's one that I, I will will look at a little bit closer. Um, and as I mentioned, you know, trying to interpret surveillance data uh, can be challenging for a number of reasons, and especially the vaccine breakthrough surveillance data. So you have to think about, well, what, what are the rates of infection uh, by gender? I think, you know, who goes out and seeks a test? So who has more healthcare seeking behavior and, and who would be more likely get a, to get a test? Um, because if you don't get a test, we don't, we don't pick you up, right? We don't, we don't have uh, uh, you don't become on, come on our radar, <laughs> in other words. Uh, so there's a lot of interesting pieces there. Uh, what's the rate of vaccination uptake after vaccination? Um, are you more likely to get tested uh, for whatever reasons? Um, so there's a lot of complicated uh, factors that go into it. And, and so to, uh, to be able to read into exactly uh, what it means is, is is definitely challenging, but that's it's a great question. Um, I think um, I'm I'm still not certain if I'm understanding the spirit of the question, but I would just say you know we conduct clinical trials uh, to determine uh, vaccine um, efficacy. So I don't know if that was a terminology question. So forgive me if I'm not getting it right. So uh, these clinical trials are very controlled, um, and um, this is what we use to give us our initial understanding 
of uh, the vaccine's uh, efficacy. Uh, later, once the, the vaccine uh, uh, received an emergency use authorization, uh, we, we still continue uh, studying uh, the vaccines and we do this uh, and we just switch the terminology a little bit. I think it's, it's, it's uh, probably confusing, but then, uh, then we, call, we call what we're doing um, after that clinical trial data, we're now looking at vaccine effectiveness in the real world. Uh, so that means uh, it's not as uh, rigorous as a clinical trial. Uh, you may not have answered every question in the clinical trial. So this is real world data uh, that's generated on how effective is the vaccine at this point in time in this specific cohort of people that's being studied um, and this this gives us a lot of uh, rich information um, so i hope that second stab at it might have answered that question um, but again what i'm reporting out uh, i would call it uh, vaccine effectiveness okay next thank you doctors okay next uh, i'm going to ask a couple of questions on behalf of Tony Rapp from the Santa Fe New Mexican. After that, we'll turn to Chris McKee, followed by Brittany Costello. Uh, so uh, Tony wanted to confirm some of what he heard uh, earlier in, in the press conference. Uh, he is asking us to confirm whether we could potentially reach crisis standards of care by early September, depending on New Mexicans' choices. And then he also has a couple of specific questions about hospitals. One is, um, are hospitals in the Southeast uh, seeing more intake uh, because vaccination rates are lower there? And is it possible that the Southeast will see a spike in deaths above and beyond what the rest of the state will see because vaccination rates are lower there? Yeah, I'll, I'll start with that one and my colleagues can feel free to add in. Yeah, I think we're on track to reach crisis standards of care in the next week. I mean, unless something unanticipated changes uh, the way it works is cases go up first, then hospitalizations go up after that. And I think we were in the uh, high 400s with hospitalizations yesterday, if not even higher. So those have certainly uh, uh, been going up. And then about four weeks, two to four weeks after that, deaths go up. Yeah, we had 426 hospitalizations on, on uh, uh, yesterday, and I think 352 uh, the day before. So uh, it's going up very rapidly. That's like 20% a day, a day. So we're concerned about that. Uh, and then, so, you know, cases first, hospitalizations next, and then with a longer lag, deaths will go up. So it is the case that anywhere where there are more cases, like we're seeing in the Southeast, but also in the metro area as well, uh, we are sure to see more hospitalizations. And then after that, we're sure to see more deaths. But unlike the alpha variant and the uh, the original versions of COVID that we went through the first year, we don't have a lot of great data, reliable data about death rates with Delta because it's had such a meteoric rise. It hasn't been around that long. And so we're still waiting for information from the literature. But if the question is, it's, is, is it possible? I think absolutely. And that's what we're worried about. Thank you very much. Next, we'll turn to Chris McKee, followed by Brittany Costello, and then Dan McKay. Chris, you are unmuted. Please go ahead and ask your question. Hello, hello. Thank you. This is uh, Chris McKee over at KRQE News 13. Um, I had three questions. 
First one being the dramatic increase in the number of people in hospital beds. We saw it. There was a correction issued yesterday, and there was quite a large number difference between the original number and the correction that went out. I just wanted to ask, I guess, the obvious question of we are seeing this more, this increase in hospitalizations. Is there any indication as to why? I feel like it has an obvious answer, but I want to ask anyway. Um, the other two questions I have were numeric questions. How many people are on ventilators in New Mexico? And how many people are in hospitals from out of state? Is there sort of maybe even a, a weekly range there? And would you caution people who maybe look at that ventilator number and say, ventilators say, or, or, or the indicator of how bad COVID really is right now? Yeah, those are all uh, really good questions. I'm thumbing up to bring my epi report up yesterday, but uh, we have 72 with innovation, 426 in the hospital. Uh, Chris, you're on to some really good points. The ventilators, I don't look at the number of ventilators, but the rate of people that are on ventilators. So I take the ventilators and divide it by uh, the number of hospitalizations. And if it's going up above 20%, I get more worried that the disease is more severe. And if it's uh, below that, I, I feel a little bit better and I've got my calculator. We're at, we're at about 16.9% based on the data, just from a one day period. So that's not as reliable as over a week. So we're not there yet with that, but yes, we're really concerned about the rise in hospital cases. It's following the, the uh, number of cases of COVID as usual by about two weeks. And I feel like there was a third question that I didn't answer. Yes, it was. Um, uh, thank you for those answers as is. Um, the, the other question being, how many people are in hospitals from out of state? I oh, know yeah. it's kind of outlined in that uh, weekly epidemiology report, but there's no like true, very specific number. So maybe is there a range that you have weekly of about how many people you're seeing from out of state? Thanks. Yeah, you know, we do have those numbers. I don't have them with me today. This comes up every time we get into a hospital crunch. And the key factor is not how many people from Texas, Oklahoma, Colorado, Utah, and Arizona do we have in uh, New Mexico hospitals, but what is the net importation versus exportation? Because, and, and we looked at it uh, late last week, and I think we had somewhere between 25 and 30 out-of-state people in New Mexico hospitals, but we had about exactly the same number of New Mexicans in out-of-state hospitals as well. So we transfer people all the time from the eastern part of the state to larger hospitals in Amarillo and uh, Lubbock, for example. We transfer people from the southern part of the state to uh, hospitals in El Paso. And so we looked at it twice last time when we were really tight on hospital beds, and we're getting the same result this time that no matter what the number is, if it's 18 or 25 or 35 out-of-staters, uh, we, we almost always have within 10%, certainly, of that same number of New Mexicans in hospitals out-of-state as well. So I think that's what you're really getting at. And, uh, you know, we could decide not to take any transfers from out-of-state, but then that would close off our ability to transfer people to other states as well. And we've decided we need the flexibility right now. So we're not doing that. Thanks. The, um, 
Dr. Scrace, the only other thing I would add, I, I think uh, there was a question about the uh, an error, and I, I think there was just simply a transcription error yesterday that went out in the in the press release, and someone caught it and then quickly changed it. So. Uh, you're correct. There was there was a, a correction made, uh, but the the final number given is is the is the correct number, and we should have today's uh, EPI report done shortly, and then the press release will come out with our our daily number for today. Thanks to you both, and I actually just wanted to jump in and offer a friendly request slash reminder to the whole press corps. Uh, you may have seen that in our uh, most recent press advisory for this event. We added a line uh, just requesting that if you have a very specific epidemiological question, one dealing with the details of one or, or more of the reports, if you're able to send that to us a day or so in advance, uh, that really helps uh, to, to give the epi team just a breather. They, they, as you can tell, they're working on quite a lot of projects simultaneously. And um, every time we have a request for them, they need to stop what they're doing and, and tend to that. And it just gives them a better chance to, to integrate our questions into their flow and, and get back to reporters in a timely way. Um, but anyway, totally appreciate the interest in the details of those reports as it's coming up in this conversation as well uh, today. So moving on, um, we have next Brittany Costello followed by Dan McKay and then Matthew Reichbach. Uh, so Brittany, you should be unmuted and ready to ask your question. Hi, this is Brittany with KOB. Thank you guys so much for doing this as always. Um, I wanted to ask a few questions. So with the ICU, uh, Dr. Schreis, you had mentioned the 50 people uh, on a waiting list. What does that mean? Uh, what types of people are on a waiting list? And I guess when I think of ICU, I think that those situations couldn't wait. So can you just break that down for me, please? Um, and then I wanted to ask the for the DOH, when, when we had our hospital update, I can't remember if it was this week or last week, they had mentioned that the individual uh, systems would be submitting data to the Department of Health uh, when it comes to those unvaccinated individuals. So are you guys collecting that data? If you are not now, will you be? Um, and then I wanted to ask also, you know, we, when we talk about the, the rise in cases and hospitalizations early on in the pandemic, you know, that's when we saw the governor step up and close businesses. Um, since we, we're not necessarily talking about that in this case. How do we turn things around um, when it when it comes? I mean, I believe only a certain amount of people will probably get vaccinated. So I'm just wondering how how do we turn this around? And then uh, the other, if you guys are able, I just wanted you to comment on the vaccine trials for Moderna and kids uh, happening here. What do you guys see with that progress? All right. Well, let me. Let me take a couple of those. Uh, Brittany, I'm gonna ask uh, Laura to talk about vaccine trials for kids and give her a chance to Google that. To Matt's comments too, one thing that you all know from working with me for the past year is I can use my calculator and talk, but not very well together. So uh, always happy to do that math for you before the uh, press conference if you're so inclined. ICU, there's 50 people on the waiting list. Aren't these people like super sick? What's going on? Well, they are super sick, Brittany. These are people in hospital emergency rooms that have been there a couple of days. These are people in hospital beds where there is no ICU capacity in that hospital, like a small rural hospital. I've had doctors call me from all over the state. 
saying, why won't you take my patient and transfer to Albuquerque? And so, uh, you know, I'm uncomfortable uh, in this situation. So it is a serious situation right now. And that is a, uh, that is something that uh, these people are all just the kind of people you imagine who need an ICU bed and they need it now. And we don't have that capacity. And uh, to the previous comment, we are moving people all over the state to fill whatever bed is available. Uh, unvaccinated data on hospital workers, will the state be collecting that? I think there's an intention. I actually talked with a hospital association about that today to do that. We're not collecting it yet. They still have quite a bit of time. Well, not that much time. They have a, another few days to uh, get everybody vaccinated by the end of this week. And then there will be some sort of regular report similar to what we have with nursing homes. And we're working out the details of that now. Um, how do we turn this whole thing around? Uh, you know, last time the governor just shut everything down and should we do that again? So I mean, this is, I mean, this is where I go into philosophical mode a little bit. And uh, I feel like up until this point in the pandemic, we sort of all thought about how do we fight COVID like a giant electrical on-off switch. You know, one of those big fork-shaped things where you pull it down and it, it turns off. And so either everything's open or everything's closed. And when everything's open, we have a lot more cases. When everything's closed, things settle down again. And, you know, we may be in this for the long haul, seeing this vaccine that was so great for us the first six months, not work quite as well for preventing infection, although still preventing hospitalization and death. You know, that's a wake up call. I personally think the answer is more in the reestat model where individual communities, individual people judge their own situations, their own risks, and make adjustments accordingly. I do understand that you'll have some people who don't want to follow any of the rules. Uh, I, I get that, but we can't just enforce absolute compliance with a shutdown for four or five years if this pandemic were to go on from variant to variant to variant. And so I think this is really back on individuals and communities. I think individuals and communities can make more of a difference uh, acting in concert to fight the pandemic than the state government can do. We had a question earlier about a big protest because people don't think healthcare workers should have to be vaccinated. Uh, my hundred e emails were about whether kids should need to wear a mask. and. You know, clearly proven, totally effective ways of fighting the pandemic that people have chosen not to adopt. And so, I mean, if other people have better ideas about how to mobilize uh, the community, uh, let me know. I, I'm, uh, I think we're looking as an administration to find a way to involve everybody and, and where we can impose, we don't have to impose on people the right thing to do, but people can just choose it. Uh, Laura, do you have any thoughts from the vaccination perspective about what we're doing to try to get people to adopt that, understanding that not everyone will? Yeah, no, I think exactly what you're saying. Just, you know, I, I think we have to meet people where they are. We do have a history of 
mistrust of, you know, racism, of historical trauma in our healthcare system, right? And so part of it is up to us as a healthcare system to build up trust, to be part of that community. And that's part of what we're trying to do at the Department of Health, reaching out with community health workers, giving people the facts and the information that they need to make that personal decision and that community decision. And that's where I think we're looking to our communities and looking to to how we can all work together because this isn't, like you said, this isn't going away. We're gonna get new variants. The, 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 the more people that are unvaccinated, the more new variants we're gonna get. And who knows if we're gonna get something even more dangerous. So I think this is really the time, like you said, to come together, figure out ways we can, as a health system, continue to, to, you know, to, to, to reach out and figure out ways to, to, to build community and, and build a way to protect each other. Um, yeah, so. Christine, do you have any uh -huh. thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I just wanted to circle back to the first question. I think it was asking, do we collect information from hospitals? And I wanted to say, absolutely. We, we have a, uh, a hospital follow-up team uh, is, is what we call them, and, and they receive um, updated information daily uh, related to COVID, COVID-related hospitalizations. So it's absolutely a partnership uh, between us here at the Department of Health and all of our, our hospital uh, uh, partners in the state. So uh, for example, we, we, we share information. Um, we're trying to determine, is this a COVID related hospitalization? So of course, if somebody uh, has a COVID positive test, but they're admitted for labor and delivery or for surgery or a psychiatric admission or a trauma, we're not gonna count that as a COVID related hospitalization uh, in this data and this report that we're gonna share. Um, and so absolutely, um, we, we um, uh, we we exchange information with our hospital partners. Uh, vaccine data um, they uh, that primi primarily is derived from a vaccine the vaccine registry, um, which is called NIMSIS. Um, but just wanted to circle back to that first question and let you know that indeed we do uh, we do receive uh, data from our hospital partners. Yeah, and I think combining that and what I said that. Uh, the question about are we getting the vaccination rates of hospital workers, uh, oh. we, could, we can use that system that we have in place that they're reporting on daily, like all the data you get about hospitalizations is through that system. So we, that's actually a good idea. We could just add that field and have them report it once a week. Thank you. Thanks to the three of you. Next, we'll turn to Dan McKay, followed by Matthew Reichbach and then Nash Jones. Uh, Dan, you are unmuted. Hi, thank you for taking our questions. Can you put the, uh, one of you put the 50 person ICU waiting list uh, into some context for us? Has um, New Mexico had a, a waiting list for ICU beds um, uh, that has reached that size anytime recently? Would you characterize it as, you know, something that happens from time to time that you have a waiting list this size, or is it alarming, unusual? Um, uh, that's it. Thank you. Uh, Dan, it's a great question. It's a completely new phenomenon. We brought the call center up statewide three times uh, at the beginning, and then again in the fall last year, and we just brought it up 
a couple of weeks ago. And so the waiting list is a new phenomenon. They were so overwhelmed with calls. Uh, <clears throat> you know, there's a law that doesn't allow us to say no to people uh, unless every single bed is full. But I think people felt badly. We're debating whether the utility of a waiting list or not. It's about 50 people, not 50%. But there are actual uh, issues related to uh, uh, whether the state as a giant call center can cut off admissions from outside the state. Uh, there's a lot of legal research going on. But we're... Uh, uh, I think there's a presentation that I'll be at on Friday to go over this waiting list question further. And uh, and so uh, I'll, we'll have more after that. But it, it's new, it's temporary, and I think it's well-meaning people trying not to uh, close off all hope. But it's moving. So you, you, you don't take a lot of people off a waiting list when all your beds are full, and that's the problem. I think there was a question, that, Laura, I'm going to go back to you about the the clinical trials for uh, children, six to 12. Yeah, so I, I just put that in the chat in case, you know, we're moving on. But yeah, so there's, um, they even actually, we, we have a trial going on here in New Mexico um, at the UNM Pediatric Center um, for children six months to 12 years old for Moderna. There's about 6,750 children enrolled in that study. And basically, um, we need to go through clinical trials before we can get an EUA. So they're expecting that perhaps in the fall, late fall or winter, they may have an EUA for, for children um, under 12. So we're just watching that, hoping that, you know, that'll happen for children. And until then, I mean, that's another reason why we need to get vaccinated because we need to protect our children under 12. Um, they can get really sick. You know, it's not as, as often as adults that they get very severely ill, but they can get severely ill. And our only way to protect them is to vaccinate, wear masks, you know, keep them safe. Thank you, doctors. Uh, before I move on to the next question, I just want to make a friendly suggestion to the group. I think we started this practice of asking of saying that each person would get to go once and we encourage one question per person. And I suspect maybe what's happening is that uh, because folks only feel like they'll get to go once, uh, they're asking multiple questions, often questions that aren't super closely related to one another. And so our, our panelists are doing their very best to scribble the questions and ensure they all get answered. But it, it may be more effective going forward, uh, perhaps at the beginning with the next press conference, if we just cycle through everybody more than once. Uh, and, and if we're able to do that, I, I'd ask that folks really do limit themselves to one question or one topic uh, so that we can kind of move through things in a, in a really coherent way. Um, so we'd really appreciate if you'd be willing to try that. Um, thanks for being receptive to our suggestions for process improvements here. Um, next, we'll turn to Matthew Reichbach, followed by Nash Jones and then Jeffrey Plant. And I don't see any more hands raised, so uh, that would be the final set of questions unless someone decides to raise a hand uh, between now and the end. So Matthew, you are unmuted. Hi, thanks for doing this. And uh, after that, I will say that I have two questions. Um, what, I, I just want to ask what the state is doing to address the nursing shortage that we have in the state. And also, um, has there been any data about the spread of COVID-19 in schools? Um, and would going back to uh, remote learning be a possibility? Thank you. I think you're muted. Sorry about that. There was a garbage truck backing up in in uh, 
in the background and I wanted to spare you all that. Uh, I was working with the hospital association this morning on the nursing shortage. Uh, our team, Chris Emery and others have reached out to FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Association organization that is uh, funding a lot of state efforts with the uh, uh, <clears throat> pandemic. And they are now willing to provide uh, federal resources to help to bring in what are called traveler nurses, nurses who you know, work 13 weeks in one place or eight weeks in one place and move to another place. And uh, those folks have been real busy. The state of Missouri contracted with a, a provider to provide uh, thousands, if they could get them, of traveling nurses at $200 an hour. That's significantly higher than the going rate right now. We talk with the hospital association today about whether they're interested in that. And they're actually not. They One, they can get a better price doing it directly. Two, uh, if the state were to contract for a certain rate that was higher than any hospital, then those nurses would move out of those hospitals here in New Mexico. Uh, we do have a way that not-for-profit hospitals can connect directly with FEMA to get reimbursement for costs of bringing nurses in to take care of patients. We're giving a orientation to that process tomorrow afternoon at one. And we also have found out that for-profit hospitals likewise can get funding, but they will go through the state. And so we're working on setting up that process and doing that orientation as well. It's the single biggest constraint right now on our ability to really take care of people, particularly in ICUs. And so we're looking to try to expand our options. At the same time, though, uh, there aren't a lot of unemployed traveler nurses in the United States because of the incredible crush on hospitals in every state. And so it's one of those situations where uh, we may be in or in soon, where it doesn't really matter how much we pay people, it won't be enough money uh, to get them to move in. Uh, and so we're, but we're working to link hospitals with FEMA directly for not-for-profit and we're working to uh, link for-profit hospitals to FEMA through the DOH today. And then I'm gonna let Christine maybe talk about cases in schools. Oops, sorry. Took me a second to get off of mute there. Um, so I, um, I, I want to just start with saying that we, we know that we're seeing um, a, a surge of cases uh, currently. Um, this appears to be driven by this highly infectious uh, Delta variant. Uh, so we're seeing an increase in cases also among children. And uh, um, and this is um, when you break down age groups under um, under 18, um, there there is increasing uh, case rates uh, across the board. And so this this was prior to um, to school beginning. What's really complicated? Um, I think your question is specifically: are, are we seeing school-associated cases? And I, I just want to say that's that's very challenging um, when you have levels of community transmission so high, uh, uh, like we have right now. 
predominantly what we're going to see in a school is what's reflected in the community around the school. And so um, I am not aware of a large number of school associated cases, but certainly um, we're picking up uh, uh, cases uh, among children that have been in school while infectious. And then we're, we're um, providing recommendations on isolation and quarantine. Um, I, I want to say that um, I think um, uh, PED, CDC, uh, and um, and certainly us uh, uh, us folks here at, at the state, we we all think it's a, a very uh, big priority uh, to keep children in school, uh, to keep them uh, in in person learning. I think um, there were a lot of there were some challenges um, um, and um, some. Uh, inequities that may have been exacerbated by that um, and was just not something we want to, to return to. So that I do know that PED is trying to prioritize the implementation of these layered mitigation strategies that, that we know at this point in time, we know they work. And so I just want to um, uh, um, emphasize that we want to see these layered mitigation measures implemented uh, so that we can uh, keep kids safe um, uh, while they are congregating at school. So these are things like physical distancing, masking, hand hygiene, optimizing ventilation, and then certainly forming a firewall around children by vaccinating everybody who is eligible to be vaccinated. That is the primary way we are gonna protect children uh, who are not old enough or eligible to be, to be vaccinated. So um, uh, I hope that answers your question. Maybe I'll, I'll pause there, see if anybody else wants to add anything. Yeah, I would just add uh, a couple of things. We have a lot of discussions about schools and the modeling team. And recall, I showed a graph a couple, three weeks ago, where the number of cases in the community would be about 400 less per day if everyone in schools wore masks. Um, that's important. It's really important. And again, people protesting their personal right to not wear a mask, but 400 cases a day in New Mexico, that's a lot of cases. 400 more. So it was a thousand a day with all kids wearing masks in school, 1400 a day, if just the unvaccinated did. And, and then I wanted to underscore Christine's point as well. There is a, a line of thinking that says that kids are more likely to get uh, covid when they're not in school than when they are in school, like if you take them out of the community and put them in school where there's so much more control, as she said. So uh, I don't think there's any discussion about returning to in-person learning right now. And I think that the, the point uh, we sort of made earlier about the fact that we have to find this balance between not the on off switch, but the rheostat. We, we, we do reopen, we go back to things like in-person teaching that are just dramatically more effective, but then we all have to step up and take the necessary precautions to ensure our kids are masked and the teachers are masked and that everybody stays safe. And I, I think if I may, uh, Dr. Scrace, I think you may have meant uh, nobody- Oh, did I say in-person? No, I yes. meant virtual learning, sorry. Sorry, <laughs> thank you. You're welcome. 
I was I'm passionate about that one. So, yeah, <laughs> no plans to, in case this is on video, we have no plans at, at whatsoever at this time to return to virtual learning. We know kids learn better at in-person school. We just have to keep them safe. Thanks for the clarification. Uh, next, we'll turn to Nash Jones, followed by Jeffrey Plant. Nash, you are unmuted. Great. Thanks, Matt. And thank you, doctors. Um, you mentioned that we could be reaching crisis standards of care in the next week. Um, you had a slide up there that showed that there was a kind of a weighted score from hospital self-evaluations of 32.5 just yesterday. So I'm wondering um, what the benchmark is for implementing those standards of care, those crisis standards of care. Um, and then whether the plan for those protocols, like you know, suspension of elected procedures, um, broadening credentials, like we saw last year, that those are going to remain the same as when they were activated, when those crisis standards of care were activated late last year in December, um, or if, if those will shift some or look any different than what we saw in December. Um, and then finally, what steps are being taken to make more room in the hospitals? And um, I forgot to mention that I'm Nash Jones, and I'm with uh, KUNM, the local NPR affiliate. Thanks. Well, uh, the it's a homegrown self-assessment tool we used in New Mexico. We've only used it one time to declare crisis standards of care. I, I vividly remember it was December 2nd. Uh, the score went up to 34. Uh, the break line between the gets you into crisis standards of care is anything above 32.5, which is what we're at right now. So we are close. Uh, we did in March of 2020, sort of close down hospitals, close down elective procedures. Uh, and that was, uh, did create some room for the initial wave. However, in November, we did not, November, December, we did not close them. Hospitals just voluntarily self-regulated and closed down those procedures as well. I mean, there's outpatient freestanding surgical services where we could, you know, close them down and hope that the orthopedist that was doing the knee arthroscopies would be a good ICU doctor. Uh, nothing against orthopedists. I don't think I would be a very good ICU doctor either, but it doesn't really create much capacity in our system. And so uh, most elective types of operations have already wound down in almost every hospital in the state. I, I'm getting a report today from the hospital association on that. But last time they regulated themselves very effectively in the December timeframe, uh, they, they expanded, uh, they closed operating rooms and turned them into ICU beds. And that kind of work is underway at the present time. So um, I think there was another question in the middle of that about additional restrictions. I think, again, uh, our hospital partners have been really smart and careful about, um, you know, raising their ability to take care of COVID while decreasing other things to have the right number of people on board in ICUs. We see them already doing that. Now, uh, not sure there's a role for government to enforce that as they know how to manage their facilities uh, better than we do. Did so I make something in the middle? Just a, I guess a follow-up would just be then, then what, what changes? If, if uh, crisis standards of care are activated, what looks different if some of the hospitals okay. are already making these changes? 
Um, and does it look different than when we activated it in December? No, it'll be the same. Um, what looks different is that someone in your family may go to the emergency room, need an ICU bed, and there won't be one for them. What it means differently is somebody might go to the hospital to deliver a baby and that hospital will have a hard time accommodating, accommodating that patient that did not happen last time, but it came close. What it means is any of the normal routine services you would get for non-life-threatening emergencies uh, may be less available. But in the end, what it really means is that we're going to have to choose uh, who gets care, who doesn't get care. And we do not want to get to that point. There was one night, I think it was December 9th, when there was no possible way to accommodate any more patients. And somehow we got through that night and things started to ease up. But it, the real meaning is hospitals won't be able to be hospitals for most of the things hospitals normally take care of people for because they are overwhelmed with taking care of COVID patients. And also at this point in time, why this is a bad point in time is that the, the case mix index, which is a mathematical measure of how sick people are in the hospital before this Delta wave was the highest it had ever been for New Mexico hospitals. We think some of that had to do with delayed care uh, from the COVID pandemic. And so, uh, so they're already, uh, they have a lot more beds filled with very sick people that they can't simply move out right now. So it's a very harsh and grim reality. I hate to be the bearer of it, but unless more people can get antibody treatment and we can, uh, ease this pressure on the hospitals. It's going to be very uncomfortable uh, next two weeks for uh, folks needing hospital care in New Mexico. Thank you, Dr. Scrace. Uh, finally, we'll turn to Jeffrey Plant. Jeffrey, you are unmuted. Thanks very much, uh, Jeffrey Plant, Silver City Daily Press. I was going to ask another question about crisis standards, but I think I'll just let everyone wrap this up and ask, um, why uh, why Gila Regional Medical Center in Silver City isn't on the available beds map? Is that just an oversight or do you not have data? I, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that and I don't wanna say anything that would put anyone in a bad light at all. So uh, it may be that there are no beds and they just didn't trip the switch. It could be that they're not on the ICU bed list because they don't have ICU beds. But uh, they do. Uh, they do. Okay. Six, oh, yes. Six ICU beds. So, yeah, that's a great question, and we will ask. Thank you. Brianna will follow up on that and make sure that uh, we reach out to Kyle and see if that's an issue in our mapping software or what. All right, everyone. Well, it looks like everyone's had a chance to ask some questions, which is great. Uh, I'll put it to the panelists for any final words. How about Laura, Christine, and then uh, and then me? Um, yeah, I just uh, last week to get that hundred dollar incentive, and also talk to your providers and get more information so that you can get vaccinated. It's our only way out right now, I think, to, to help protect our our state and our families. Christine. 
Well, I just want to say thank you for inviting me uh, this week. Um, it's a pleasure to have the opportunity to uh, share some of uh, our data. And um, I want to thank all of you for your questions uh, related to our data. And uh, I wanted to say thank you. Um, someone had, one reporter had caught an error in our pediatric report. So thank you uh, for, for your careful review. Um, and then I would just, I have to echo what um, Dr. Patahone just said. Um, I, I, I really hope that folks hear the message and um, uh, every eligible adult uh, finds a vaccine site and gets, gets vaccinated. Uh, the data I shared today shows that vaccine effectiveness is, uh, remains very high uh, uh, to protect us all to protect us from serious illness, disease, which includes hospitalization and death. I'll end there. Yeah, and I, I really appreciate our media, media power partners hanging in with us for so long today. A lot of information again, where uh, we just felt like everything we had to show you was relevant. I, I do think you can really help us in the next two weeks by letting your readers and listeners and viewers know about treatment and seeking treatment. That's one thing we can do to slow the flow into hospitals. We're having a pandemic among unvaccinated people that is gonna result in uh, our inability to take care of additional people. It's gonna result in a significant number of deaths. It's just a matter of time till we get to that point. And so anything whatsoever you can do to help us alert your customers of the need to get treatment uh, if they're over 64, obese, or have another risk factor for COVID-related disease would be uh, of great, great assistance to us, along with continued encouragement toward vaccination, highlighting communities or um, the Department of Health or Los Alamos or places where vaccinations are really high, looking a little bit more into that and letting folks know that this is an opportunity to save the lives of their loved ones and their communities and, and other people in their communities. So with that, well, thank you. Uh, sorry for the somber tone today. I think we're all apprehensive about the next two weeks and we all wanna do everything we possibly can to uh, mobilize our community to fight this virus and to keep uh, folks in New Mexico as safe as we possibly can. With that, we'll say goodbye. Thank you. Thank you.